Jonah chapter 2, beginning in, actually Jonah chapter 1, beginning in verse 17. I'll read, you follow along. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the sea, and the floods surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall look again upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever, yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Thus far, God's word. Well, I want to begin this morning by addressing the proverbial elephant in the room. If the book, is jo- if the book of Jonah is known for anything, it's known for the fish. And the question surrounding the fish is, are you sure that it wasn't a whale? I mean, consider all the books out there, uh, a representation of which include Jonah and the whale, why the whale, one whale of a story, or all the sermons, a few of the titles being, God has a whale of a plan for your life, a whale of a tale, from the belly of the whale. So there's a lot of people out there who seem uh, perfectly satisfied believing that Jonah was swallowed by a whale. Well, let me give you at least two reasons why I think uh, Jonah was not swallowed by a whale. Uh, Reason number one, because the passage doesn't say that he was. He was swallowed by a fish, Uh, literally a big fish. Number two, whales are certainly large enough to uh, uh, swallow and retain and expectorate, I had to use that word, expectorate a human Uh, from their system. I use it because, and this has nothing to do with my sermon, but when I was about 10 years old, I was at the dentist. And after the hygienist was done with all of her ministrations inside my mouth, she gave me a cup of water and I took it in. And she she said, wash your mouth out. And I did. And then she said, now expectorate. And I was 10 and I had no idea what she, and so I just sat there. and, And she said, expectorate. Spit it out. And that's what the whale's going to do when we get to chapter 2, verse 10. But whales have capacity, or the fish is going to do that when we get to (laughs) verse 10. They have the capacity to do that, but whales don't eat humans. 
Whales eat plankton. And that's why whales who bite down on or even take in a human being either let him go or spit him out. And there are tales about whalers from the uh, 18th and 19th centuries, uh, Marshall Jackson and Job Sherman, who were both taken in and spit out by whales. Albert Wood and Peleg Nye, who were both bitten and held, but released by whales. Whales don't uh, eat human beings, take in human beings. So up front, it's not Jonah and the whale, it's Jonah and the big fish. The fish who swallows up Jonah in chapter 2, verse 1, and then spits him out in chapter 2, verse 10. And what happens between these epic occurrences is the substance of our passage this morning, a poetically prayerful reflection that is offered by the prophet Jonah. But before we dive into this, uh, so to speak, uh, we need to be clear again on why this book was written. That is to say, this book was not written about Jonah, but about God. Uh, G. Campbell Morgan, who was a professor at Biola more than a few years ago, put it like this. He said, men have uh, been looking so hard at the great fish that they have failed to see the great God. So first and foremost, this book is about our great God. And two things about him in particular. First, God's absolute sovereignty. Uh, and in a world that can seem at times entirely out of control, as illustrated last week in chapter one by a storm that was hurled upon the ship, cargo being hurled overboard, Jonah being hurled into the sea, it's good to know that we have a God who is entirely in control. And Jonah testified to that control in chapter 1, verse 9, when he spoke of the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. That is to say, the God who is sovereign over everything and everybody. He can do with them what he wants. So today we're going to see God um, appoint. That's, that's a term of, of royal prerogative. Uh, we're going to see him appoint a great fish to carry out his sovereign purposes. And in chapter 4, in a couple of weeks from now, we're going to see him do it again with a shade plant and a worm and a scorching wind. God's sovereignty, his control over everything and everyone is on display here in this book. But second, we're going to see God's grace. In principle, we see it expressed in chapter 4, verse 2, where we read that God is gracious, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. He's gracious, merciful, and all those things. What a gift to us who live in such a graceless age. But that's not only communicated in principle here in this book, it's communicated in practice. Um, last week, when Jonah tried to run from God, God graciously caught up to him, kept him from getting away. This week, when Jonah tries to kill himself, 
God graciously prevents him from doing so. Next week, when Jonah pronounces judgment on Nineveh, bad dudes, one and all, uh, God graciously rescues them from their pending doom. Eric Tanis, a couple of weeks ago, referred to this kind of uh, thing as problematic grace. That is to say, grace dispensed on those who clearly deserve punishment. Problematic grace is the intersection of, of God's grace and his sovereignty. Here's what I mean. As a rule, rebellion against God leads to one's discipline and ultimately destruction. But God is not bound by his rules. What do you mean by that? Well, if God wants a big fish to swallow up and spit out a human being, which as a rule doesn't happen, then he can do it. Chapter 1, verse 17. If God wants to stop the sun and the moon to lengthen a day, which as a rule doesn't happen, he can do it. Joshua 10, 13. If God wants to, to feed a, a prophet over the course of time by way of a bunch of ravens, which as a rule doesn't happen, God can do it, 1 Kings 17.4. So back to our book here, if God wants to save a people worthy of death by way of a rebellious prophet, which as a rule doesn't happen, then he can do it. That's a hopeful word. That tells me that no one is beyond God's help, no matter how far adrift they happen to be. How beautiful. In fact, that problematic grace is, is really the hinge on which this whole chapter swings in verse number six, where Jonah cries out in, in so many words, I went down into the ocean, which as a rule he deserved, and yet surprisingly, you, God, brought me up to life which is this morning's main point, and is succinctly summed up there at the very end of Jonah's prayer in verse number nine, salvation belongs to the Lord. And so that's what we're going to see from the beginning to the end of this prayer this morning. Our sovereign God graciously saving Jonah by way of the big fish in chapter one, verse 17. Saving Jonah from the place of death, chapter two, verse six and then saving Jonah for ongoing service. Service to the Lord by way of anticipated sacrifices and vows, that's in verse number nine, and then service for the Lord by fulfilling his commission to uh, go and preach at Nineveh. That's implied by verse 10. All of this is of God, entirely of God. In Jonah's case, as well as in ours. Because only God can save us from our rebellion. Only God can save us from what we deserve in exchange for our rebellion, which is death. Only God can save us for service in his name and for his glory. And to think otherwise is to persist in the way of Jonah, which we'll look at as we get on in this chapter. So salvation belongs to our sovereign and gracious God. That's the way forward this morning. Now, 
For Jonah to be saved means that he must be in peril. And so let's get ourselves up to speed by uh, remembering what happened to Jonah last week, how he got himself into this mess. Um, Last week we learned that God called Jonah to go and prophesy at Nineveh, which was to the east of where he was, located in uh, uh, modern Mosul, Iraq. Uh, Jonah instead uh, took passage on a ship that was moving in the opposite direction to a place called Tarshish. Um, In the process, he essentially resigned his prophetic commission. At least that's what he tried to do and he starts moving in the opposite way. Well, at sea, a storm arose, and it began beating the ship around and breaking it up. Everyone on the ship begins praying to their God. Um, Everyone except for Jonah. And, And the sailors were incredulous over Jonah's prayerlessness, especially when Jonah told them that his God was the one who made the sea and the dry land. Chapter one, verse nine clearly implying the Lord's sovereignty over all of this. Well, Jonah finally admitted that the storm was probably due to uh, his rebellion, the result of his rebellion, but instead of repenting, Jonah recommended that the sailors toss him into the drink as a sacrifice to calm the sea. Well, they were reluctant and they didn't want to do it. So it says that they were straining at the oars, trying to get themselves to safety. But finally, in verse 15 of chapter 1, we read that the sailors finally picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. So that's where we ended last week. Jonah's tossed overboard, and in a literary sense, He's done. He's past tense. He's dead. Because subsequent to him being tossed, what did we learn? Well, as we moved forward to the end of the chapter there, um, the sailors feared Jonah's God. Because what Jonah said would happen, in fact, did. The storm was calmed, and as a result, they offered sacrifices and made vows to Jonah's God. Now, again, that could have easily been the end of the story. Made this a one-chapter book. And in human terms, it, it, it would have been. But again, remember, this story is not about Jonah. It's about God. So as we come to chapter 1, verse 17, we read that as the sailors are thanking God for his gracious and sovereign provision over them, God is saving Jonah by way of this big fish. Chapter 1, verse 17, you can read it there. The Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. So just as this account appears to be all done, surprise, (laughs) it keeps on going. Uh, Notice with me here a couple of things. Uh, First, the Lord appointed the fish to swallow up Jonah. Um, It was not a punitive act that uh, God put on this prophet. It's not as if Jonah uh, shook his fist at the Lord 
uh, said his word, and then God said, really? I'll show you. Gulp. That's not what's happening here. God was not getting back at Jonah by having him swallowed by the fish. Rather, this was a sovereign and gracious act, a saving act that God is performing here. God didn't save Jonah from the fish. He saved Jonah by the fish. He kept Jonah from dying. For Jonah, the fish was what the ark was to Noah, what the basket was to Moses. It was the thing that kept the water from wrapping around him and taking his life. That's why the ancient symbol of the church is a boat, is a ship. The church may not prevent us from suffering the storms of this world, but it is the only thing in this world that's going to keep us afloat and get us through safe to the other side in the world to come. So that's the first thing I want us to see. The fish uh, um, was no, uh, <laughs> Jonah's means of salvation given him by God. Second thing I want us to notice is that Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days. So it wasn't as if this fish uh, scooped up Jonah and then spit him out onto the sand all in, all in one motion. No, uh, between being swallowed in 117 and vomited in uh, 210, Jonah had some time on his hands. Time to deal with the shock of being swallowed by the fish. Did he see this thing coming in the darkness of the deep? Probably not. Did he see this thing after being deposited onto the beach? Probably not. We know that it was a big fish. We know that, but in the moment, Jonah really had to just wrestle with the reality of this new and sudden and unknown slimy surrounding in which he found himself. But once he'd calmed down and settled in, he had time to reflect. He had time to think about his situation, the circumstances that led to it, the condition of his soul, uh, the changes that needed to take place if he was ever going to see the sun again and God's smile on him as well. So in the midst of all of that, chapter 2, verse 1 informs us that Jonah prayed. He prayed to the Lord, his God, from the belly of the fish. In his prayerful, poetic reflections are, are contained from uh, verse 2 to verse 9. In verses 2 through 6a, we see that prayer moving in a downward direction, fact, we sang it six times over this morning, I noticed, when I was sinking down, sinking down, sinking down, sinking down, sinking down. That, that's the motion of Jonah's prayer here, a, a, a movement toward death. Well, in verses 6b through 9, it, it begins moving up in a saving direction, not toward death, but toward life. And I want you to especially notice that as Jonah sinks down, 
his, his arms begin to progressively unfold in surrender to the Lord. You remember last week, Kenny um, uh, symbolized uh, Jonah's resistance to the Lord by way of, of folded arms. In fact, I, I can still see Kenny going like this as he, Jonah's getting tossed into the drink. That's symbolically what he was doing. But uh, as he went down, his arms opened up. But I also want you to notice this, that as he starts to come up, his arms once again begin to fold. Not as tight as they were before, but fold nonetheless. And we're a lot like Jonah in that way, aren't we? Happy to open up to God when the teeth of trial begin to tighten down on us, but just as happy to begin to close up again as those teeth start to loosen up. Well, again, more on that as we get to the end of Jonah's poetic prayer here. Well, to begin, let's see how God saved Jonah from the place of death. We'll begin there in verse 2. Again, before Jonah comes up, he's going down. And as he goes down, there are three things that are happening. Hang on. As I go down. A subtle suggestion there. He's drowning. Living people don't drown. Living people are buoyant. Living people have oxygen in their lungs, ox- oxygen that uh, supplies their blood, that uh, uh, um, um, uh, facilitates the working of their muscles so that, that they can stay up. They can stay above the water. They can breathe. But once your oxygen supply dissipates and your lungs empty, you can't stay up. You go down. You begin to drown. You're no longer buoyant. And verse 3 makes it eminently clear that Jonah is drowning. Take a look at it. He's going down beneath the the undulating billows and storm-tossed waves into this surrounding flood, into the deep, into the heart of the sea. And as he goes down, verse 2 indicates that he cried out. Really, I, I think he was screaming. I, I, I would be screaming out of his distress, out of the belly of Sheol, that is the place of the dead. So with what breath Jonah has left in his lungs, he is expelling these terror-filled clouds of effervescence. Uh, 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 bubbles coming out of his mouth, muffled by the sea, heard by no one except the Lord. And that may be the way you feel this morning, profoundly distressed, desperately crying out, painfully unheard going down, down, down. But Jonah was a prophet, and he knew his Bible. And as he's crying out these, these prayers that 
he, he's expressing are informed by the Scripture. And one Scripture in particular, Psalm 18.6, In my distress I called out upon the Lord. To my God I cried for help. And from his temple he heard my voice. And my cry to him reached his ears. So while no creature uh, could hear Jonah's cries, the Creator could. And the Creator did. Psalm 5 tells us He hears all of our cries and all of our groanings. And Romans chapter 8 tells us that His Spirit translates them before the Father. Our inarticulate cries before the Father with precision, accuracy. I can remember as a teenager, I was going through a particularly rough patch, and I was uh, pouring my heart out to my dad. And uh, my dad said to me, if you only have enough strength to pray, God help me, that's enough. Because it is. God hears, understands our inarticulate prayers. And if that's where you're at this morning, the Lord hears your cries. And if that's where you are this morning, that's why the people on either side of the platform after the service will be happy to hear your heart and come alongside and pray with you and for you. So Jonah's drowning, he's screaming, and finally, as it were, Jonah hits the bottom. He, he traveled so far down that uh, we see there in verse 5, the weeds had come up to meet him. They're, they're tangled in his hair. He finds himself at the threshold of Sheol, that is the place of the dead, and we know that because he says as much in verse 2 and then in verse 6, he describes it for us. Uh, he says he's at the base or the roots of the mountains. Uh, that's how the ancients understood the foundations of uh, the world uh, at that time. Mountains that rose like pillars from the floor of the ocean, held up the earth, uh, two of which served then as a gateway to the netherworld to the place of the dead, to Sheol. Further, in verse number six, he's at, uh, and you'll see there, the land whose bars closed upon him. Now, here's the thing. In the Old Testament, the, the term land is most often used for the promised land, uh, Israel's inheritance, the place where God is present with his people, but here the term land is used to describe the exact opposite, the place where God is not present, the netherworld. So this scene here is really, it's nightmarish in its composition. Jonah, who once sang psalms of ascent, with other pilgrims on an annual basis as they traveled to the temple of the Lord on Mount Zion, the place where God is, has now just completed a psalm of descent, 
on an anti-pilgrimage to the place where God is not, the place of the dead, the anti-temple, if you will. Jonah's as far from the Lord as one can get, and yet it's in that place that his confusion clears up. Everything becomes crystal clear. Crises can have that effect, can't they? Uh, They can uh, make the difference between right and wrong very clear. Important and unimportant, very clear. Good and bad, very clear. The crisis can be circumstantial, as dramatic as being flung into the sea like Jonah, or as common as being embroiled in some interpersonal conflict. The crisis can be physical, like a grave illness. Uh, If you read uh, in 1 Corinthians 11, the passage that we uh, commonly read on a monthly basis uh, in preparation for the Lord's Supper service, if you read just beyond that, you'll see that the Lord uh, sometimes uses weakness and sickness to clarify our sin so that we can see it and repent of it and escape the condemnation that comes with it. Crisis can be financial. One that reminds us uh, of the words of Deuteronomy 8. Beware lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth, thereby clarifying the fact that it's the Lord your God who gives you power to get wealth. God uses crisis to clarify things, and especially ultimate issues. And that's certainly what Jonah's crisis did as the wayward prophet acknowledged God's sovereign grace that took him, according to verse 6, which again is the hinge on which this whole chapter swings, from death, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me, to life. Yet, You brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God, causing Jonah's arms to unfold and open again to the Lord of life, to the Lord of second chances. And in that way, God saved Noah, brought him back up, brought him back up for ongoing uh, service. Um, service to the Lord by way of vows and sacrifices there in verse 9, as well as service for the Lord by fulfilling his commission to go to Nineveh and speak on God's behalf. Now, next week, Rob Lister's going to show us how all that went. Uh, I'll just say it went very well. Uh, The Ninevites uh, favorably respond to God's word, chapter 3, verse 5. The Ninevite king in verse 6 favorably responds to God's word. In fact, that goes on and on for a few verses. Years later, Jesus announced that on the last day, a day in which we'll all be present, so we're going to see this happen, what I'm about ready to tell you. On the last day, the men of Nineveh are going to stand up against the generation that heard Jesus preach and condemn it. Why is that? Because the Ninevites repented at the preaching of Jonah, while Jesus' audience failed to repent at the preaching 
of the one to whom Jonah pointed, to whom his descent, descent and ascent pointed, the death and the burial and the resurrection of God's own son, Jesus Christ. Wow. Jonah was the sign. Jesus was the sign in reality. Jonah had to be brought up from the deep. Jesus raised himself from the dead. And there were those who resisted that. How hard-hearted they were. How hard-hearted we are. And this is why our sermon needs to end with a warning. Because if Jonah struggled with anything, it was hard-heartedness. Miraculous changes don't always guarantee lasting results. Uh, To be sure, Jonah went down to the bottom of the sea. Um, His arms, they, they unfolded. There was great change that came about in his life. He opened up to God. But as I mentioned earlier, as he came up, his arms began to fold up. Uh, Not as tight as they were before, but enough so that he's prone to anger and despair and hard-heartedness that's going to show up in spades in in chapter 4. And the reason that Jonah's arms began to fold again has everything to do with perspective. Perspective. A perspective that's highlighted by comparing Jonah's story with Noah's story. Uh, Both are very similar in terms of their uh, physical setting, even the literary structure of the two are very similar, but they're dissimilar in this way. While Noah believed that he was saved by God's providence, Jonah believed that he was saved by his own piety. Noah understood that God saved him in total. Jonah understands that God saved him, but it was due to his uh, uh, pietistic leanings and doings. In verse 7, Jonah announced, I remembered the Lord, when like Noah, it was the Lord who remembered Jonah. Verse 8, he basically says, I'm not like idol worshipers. I'm, I'm different. When unbeknownst to Jonah, the idol-worshiping mariners that had tossed him into the drink ended up embracing his God. Verse 9, he declares, I will offer sacrifices and pay vows. But there's no record that he ever did. Well, the pagan sailors did both. Jonah was correct to assert that salvation belongs to the Lord. It does. But our sovereign God saves by grace through faith, not by works, not by piety, not by pedigree. So as we wrap up this morning, we've got to consider again what our graciously sovereign God is doing by way of the the crises and conflicts in our lives. As in Jonah's case, God uses afflictions to open up our arms again, and again, and again, to keep them open to him and to his work in us and through us. 350 years ago, there was a fellow by the name of Thomas Brooks. 
He was a Puritan pastor. He wrote a great book called Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. You think, man, any book written that long ago. Uh, hey, it is the most uh, wonderfully accessible book and highly applicable book. I, I commend it uh, to you all. I've got it by my chair. I read five pages just about every morning, so just little bits along the way. And um, Thomas Brooks wrote this. You should see it on the screen here. There's no greater misery in this life than not to be in misery. No greater affliction than not to be afflicted. And here's Brooks' reasoning. The hand of God may be set against a man while the heart of God is dearly set upon him so that his afflictions revive and recover decayed graces and inflame love that's cold, quicken faith that's decaying, put life in those hopes that are withering and spirits into those joys and comforts that are languishing. Through our crises and conflicts, God keeps our arms open so that we can enjoy him. Not resist him, but enjoy him and glorify him and serve him and fall into his open arms when we meet him on the last day. May God have mercy on us as he did on Jonah. Amen. Let's pray. Father, you're sovereign and gracious. Salvation belongs to you and you alone. May we respond to crisis and conflict that come into our lives as uh, sweet graces from you that help us keep our arms open and our hearts responsive to you and your work. With thanks for the one who made it all possible, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.